Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Westside. Good morning, Battersea. Good morning online, and good morning to everyone here in Balham. My name is Phil. Um, I have been part of the Balham site for about five years now, so uh, getting on for a while. Um, and yeah, it's my joy this morning to continue our worship in the Word um, through our teaching series on 1 Peter. Um, so with that in mind, if you'd like to, if you have a Bible, I would really recommend you, you get it out. Depressing how many people reach for their phones, but I will move past that. Um, but yeah, we're going to look at quite a few uh, what Peter talks about in, in these next verses. We're going to be looking at verses, chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verse 10. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to share a little uh, story from my preparation for, for this message, um, which is slightly unexpected. So um, I was looking for a particular commentary on, on this passage um, from someone called Scott McKnight, called the NIV Application Commentary on 1 Peter. Um, and I put it into a website that I normally go to to kind of buy secondhand books. Um, and it said it didn't have any. But it did offer me an alternative, which I think is going to come up on the screen. <laughs> so it offered me uh, the story of the Flopsy Bunnies. Um, and for a moment, I, you know, I, I'm a good vineyarder, so I paused to see what her spirit might be saying to me. <laughs> so I looked up the plot, and apparently, quote, the story concerns how the Flopsy Bunnies, whilst raiding a rubbish heap of rotting vegetables, fall asleep and are captured by Mr. McGregor. While Mr. McGregor is distracted, however, the six are freed by Thomasina Tittlemouse. Exactly. And the sack is filled with rotten vegetables. At home, Mr. McGregor proudly presents the sack to his wife, but unfortunately receives a strong scolding when she discovers the actual content. Now, whilst I thought that was a very rich and satisfying drama, my prophetic gifting is not strong enough, so I'll allow you to decide later on if that was the Lord speaking um, through that story. But back on track, we are, as Mike said, as I said, we are in a series on 1 Peter. This is the third message uh, we have. Um, and as people um, who've heard me speak before know I like to do, I like to catch us up by way of limerick. So I've got another for you, just to catch us up to where we are kind of at this point uh, in, in the letter that Peter writes. So this is what I think uh, he's saying to this point. He says, there were some Christians who were being excluded and a negative response was being exuded. It was really hard to find things apart from included that rhymed with excluded. Um, a negative response was being exuded. So Peter wrote them a letter to help make it better and suggested the problem was rather deep-rooted. It's a little tease there for what we're going to do this morning. Um, but the question I want to frame these verses, which again is, is 1.13 to, to 2 verses 10, 
Um, going to explore them um, in a, in a, not necessarily line by line, because one thing that's really helpful to know about how Peter writes his letters, which I'll be honest, I quite struggle with, so if you struggle, then, then um, come into my, my camp, is that he kind of writes in circles. He doesn't actually write linearly. He sort of, what he's saying, he kind of says it and then says something else and comes back and says it again, and then says something else and comes back and says it again. So you'll kind of notice that theme um, if you find it different, say, from, from reading some of the letters from Paul or some of the others. But what I want to frame our teaching on time this morning is with this opening question that we're going to explore, which is how should Christians respond when we experience trials and rejection because of our faith? How should we respond when we experience trials and rejection because of our faith? Now, this morning, you might be in a place where you're thinking you have had that or you haven't had that experience. Um, But the reality is, if we want to become disciples of Jesus in all areas of our lives, then we will face at least resistance and quite possibly exclusion. I have a friend who often talks when he's making important decisions about his life and his faith, about he quotes to himself Jesus, who talks about the cost of discipleship. I find it very challenging and quite inspiring when he says it. And we need to be aware that actually the things that we have to decide in life and the way we want to choose to live if we are disciples of Jesus is not always going to be in keeping with the world around us. And as we heard from Mike and others last week, this is therefore the core context of this letter. And therefore this is the question that we will open up with this morning. And I'm going to come just to one thing that I think Peter says very powerfully, and one thing only. But before we get there, let me set the scene uh, a little from the text. I'm going to look at two things that Peter, on the surface, very clearly states in these verses. The first thing he states is how the Christians at the time, and how I think we as well, often respond to trial and difficulties. He says in verse 114, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, before you came to Christ. He says it again, like I said, he kind of says it in circles. says it in verse 2-1, and he says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And he comes back actually again just in the verse after that we're going to get to today in verse, chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And I think there's two things quite simply he's saying here. The first is as Christians, in fact, just as human beings, in the face of exclusion and trial and difficulties, we often, and they were, will slip into harmful and selfish behaviors to those around us. We'll conform to the ways some parts of the world will respond to attack. And he says in in 114, we are copying basically the behaviors. We are conforming to those negative desires that are still within us. The second is actually a little later on in the letter, in verse chapter 4, in verse 9 and 16 to 17, actually, which other people will cover in the coming weeks. He actually implies that some of the Christians are responding to their exclusion and their rejection by reacting with attacks of their own. But either way, through conformity or attacking and hitting back, Peter is clear in the first instance how we are not to respond. He's warning against an orientation to self when you come under trial and suffering. 
So the second, that's the first clear thing. The second clear thing is he then says, and this is how I want you to respond. So again, back to chapter 1, you can see he's skipping around. In verses 15 and 16, he says, But just as he, which is God, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, this is him quoting the Hebrew scriptures, Be holy because I, that being God, am holy. And again, a few verses later in 122, he says, Now you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for one another. Love one another deeply, and from the heart. So this is an orientation to God, an orientation to others. And Peter actually is saying the same thing that we see all over other parts of Scripture. For example, Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So it's quite simple, really. How do we respond to trial and rejection? Number one, we refuse to conform, we refuse to attack back to our own selfish desires by being holy and living and loving people in the midst of it. And I kind of got to that point and I thought, oh, this could be my shortest teaching ever. Um, and I could stop there. And I wondered, I wonder how many sermons on this passage have. How many people have rightly said, Peter here is imploring us, don't resort back to those selfish desires and the hurtful desires but live differently, live loving, holy lives representing Christ. And that's perfectly true. It's perfectly biblical, and you can see it. We've just seen it briefly on the text. But I'll be honest, I got there, and I was like, I want more. I want more, Peter, because that feels on some level a little surface level. That feels a little like, okay, I kind of know what I want to do, but I don't know how to do that. That's extremely hard. So I looked again, and I was like, Peter, tell me how, please. And I think part of this desire for this depth was really fanned by an extremely powerful book I read in the last few months. And it's a book by um, a, a, a Christian leader, theologian called Howard Thurman. Um, he was an African-American leader, prolific author, and his philosophy of nonviolence shaped a lot of the civil rights movement in America in the 1950s and 60s. And he wrote this extremely powerful book that I would highly, highly commend called Jesus and the Disinherited. He wrote it in 1949, and it's an extremely powerful exploration of Jesus' teaching and example of how to live as a member of an oppressed people group in society, and particularly in that context as a black person living under severe racial oppression and injustice. And one of the things that really got me was the early part of the book, Thurman shares his stories and testimonies of a teaching young uh, black men and women that they are called to rise above the level of their oppressors, which, let's be honest, at the time were also a lot of white Christians. And they would come back to him and say, how do you expect us to live to a higher morality than those who oppress us? How do you expect us to actually do this when we're going through this? And I say that not to draw any disrespectful or unhelpful equivalency between 1 Peter and the racism of our past and our present. But I draw it to make the point, as Thurman goes on to discuss in his book, that I think the deeper the challenge God asks of us, the deeper the solution needs to be. And so I took this question, I looked again at 1 Peter, and I said to him, metaphorically, I suppose, um, 
how do you expect us? How did you expect them? How do you expect me? How do you expect Vinyal 61 to live to a higher morality than those who reject us? And I'd love to show you what I found. So on the next slide is a list of quotes um, from some of the verses uh, that, again, you see sort of scatter um, a range of things uh, from Peter's instructions. So I'll read them all through. So in 1.14, he says, um, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you lived in ignorance. Three verses later in 1.17, he says, Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Six verses later, he says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Start of the next chapter, he kicks it off saying, Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that you may grow up in your salvation. Um, apparently, I'm going back to 1 verse 5, where it says, You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 1 9, a few verses later, he again says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And the last piece within this section we're looking at, in 1.10, he says, once you were not a people, and now you are a people of God. I wonder if you can see the link. I wonder if you can see what I think Peter is doing here. What is the repeated basis he comes back to time and time again of how we live differently under trial? And my accidental italics might give it away. But the next slide, therefore, I'll put in bold. They're all about identity. They're all about who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. So before I speak a little more about how I think we can take hold of that today, let's stick with Peter a little longer and unpack some of the language he uses to see the profound and the implications of what he chooses to say in some of these words. To many people, the culmination of this passage is what he says in 1.9, where he says to them, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And there were three things going on here. Um, and let me quote two uh, biblical scholars to actually hopefully make this really plain and powerful to us. The first two phrases people you Peter uses here, which are really important, are royal priesthood and holy nation. It might sound quite old-fashioned to us and unappealing even to us, but listen to what, again, theologian Scott McKnight says about it. Speaking about this, he says, to be part of royalty was, at their time, beyond one's natural ability because royalty was inherited. Being part of royalty to them was unthinkable. But Peter adds to this notion of royalty the idea of priesthood. To be a priest at the time was a privilege beyond comparison because it involved entry into the special courts and the holy places of the temple. Therefore, to call all the members of the family of God a royal priesthood meant to wipe away any sense of heritage or lineage and to grant them the highest status one could imagine in Judaism kings and priests. It's a very, very important, powerful statement he makes there. And the third phrase Peter uses is God's special possession. 
And this is almost definitely a reference to one of the, the names God gives Israel in the Old Testament after he brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And to again break this down a little more, this is scholar Carmen Joy Imes, and she says, to fully grasp the significance of Israel's new status, a status which Peter is now placing on these Christians and placing on us, she says, I need to teach you my favorite Hebrew word, segula. In the NIV, it's it's translated as treasured possession, but it helps if we understand the wider use of the word throughout the Old Testament. Segula appears eight times. Twice it refers to the king's personal treasury, his wealth, what's most important to him. And the other six times are figurative, using it to refer to Israel as Yahweh, God's name's treasured possession. So we can see that these words from Peter, these reminders and declarations of identity... They were not just nice words to flatter, to comfort, to give them a boost, to go out that next Monday morning and do their best, to grit their teeth, and to live hardly and live well under trial. They are deep and powerful statements of identity. And it's important that we also remember these are both individual and corporate. These are spoken over all of us as as a church, as well as individuals within the church. And I think there are deep and powerful teaching from Peter about this is the place from which he's calling us, he's allowing us, he's teaching us to live this holy life in cultures that oppress or reject us. So here was the conclusion I was left wondering. What if the strength of our outward response to trial is equal to the depth of our inward identity in God? What if the strength of our outward response to trial is equal to the depth of our inward identity in God? I will confess identity is a very big topic for me. Uh, My first ever teaching at this church was on identity. Very recently, I heard a a Bible teacher say that um, the single most powerful experience in our lives as Christians is what we experience when we imagine Jesus looking at us. What do we imagine when Jesus looks at us? So we live in a culture obsessed right now with identity. And I think with very good reason in some ways. Um, Individuals, companies, religion, family, all sorts of voices tell us who we are, who we ought to be, who we should become. Um, Those voices end up coming from inside of us and outside of us. And so I think there's a very common sense wisdom to what Peter's doing here and his encouragement to look and be reminded of identity as a central response to how we react in all situations, but especially how we react under trial. So who are you? What view of yourself drives your sense of identity? What view of yourself drives your response to life's events? So how then might we make use of this truth? How we might take hold of this 
from today and onwards in this culture that we also live in where, where we might be resisted or even excluded from the culture around us. I find the model on the screen um, from spiritual director Margaret Silf extremely helpful and practical. I, I go to it quite a lot. And she talks about three levels of our lives, especially spiritual lives. On the outside of the circle, um, she talks about the where layer of our lives. And this is a day-to-day experience. Our families, our children, our jobs, uh, the highs and the lows, the things that happen to us day-to-day. And this is the level where rejection and, and resistance of our faith may indeed occur. So that's on the outside. Then the next layer down is what she calls a kind of how layer of life. And this is the element where we have some choice. We have some choice how to respond to what's going on in our where layer. Um, how will we respond in, in what we're talking about and how, uh, when we push up against culture and against society. But there's another layer she talks about beyond that, which is the who center or the who layer. And as Christians, this is our true center. This is where the truth lives that tells us we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. And I think the wisdom in this diagram echoes Peter, and it tells us that we can try to change our behavior. We can try and not conform. We can try and not attack back through our effort while just operating in that where center. But most of us are going to fail. And even if we go to the next level and just do our absolute best to grit our teeth and just change how we react, even if we can't take our ways, ourselves away from that exclusion, it also is just not the most powerful place to come from. But it's God's spirit and God's power that lies most deeply in our who center, in our identity. And I think if we had conversation with Peter about what he wrote, he would say it's time spent living and thinking through and praying through and teaching through that uh, who center over time that will then push out through our how and through our where in how we respond under trial. So here's my answer to Peter's answer to how does he expect us to live to a higher morality than those who reject or exclude us. And I think he says, by learning to draw from our true identity as God's beloved. By learning to draw deeply from our true identity as God's beloved. Now that might sound appealing to some of us, um, but let's be honest, some of us might be like, what the... That's just not true because of this. There's no way I'm God's beloved because this has happened to me or because I've done this or because I'm not even sure God exists. So how, how can that possibly be true? And I think the good news is Peter has seen this coming as well and he's given us the answer. He writes it in uh, the first chapter, verse 18. Where again, in the middle of all of this, in his kind of circular, wonderful, creative writing, he writes, For we know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that we have been redeemed from the empty life handed down from our ancestors. But by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 
He was chosen before the creation of the world and was revealed to us in these last times for your sake. And I think Peter puts this in there to remind us of, if I'm honest, one of the most important things that can be, um, we can stick in our minds, especially when we go through trial, is that God's voluntary entrance in the world, in the person of Jesus, was, is, and always be the best affirmation that identity is God's treasure's possession. It's a historical event. It's not a nice way of thinking. That's where God showed the breadth of his value for us, what it meant that we were his treasured possession. And it's from Jesus' life and the Holy Spirit in us that now empowers us, therefore, to live holy, different and love-filled lives, even in the midst of rejection and trial. I'm going to invite the bands up as I come in to close our teaching time. But I wonder how that idea is landing for you just now. I wonder what God might be saying to you in your mind, in your emotion, in your questions. I wonder how you feel when Jesus looks at you. And it's at this point I'm supposed to give a really practical here's what to do tomorrow solution. Um, I don't have one. But I do have an invite, um, and I have a book. Um, as I said, this is very personal to me. Um, in the last sort of eight to eight to twelve months, um, God's been speaking to me a lot about this identity of beloved. A lot of it came through um, the book that'll be on the screen. It's a Christian writer called Henry Nowen. It's called Life of the Beloved. It's a short book he wrote to a friend who actually wasn't a Christian about what it might mean very practically, very really, to be God's beloved. I would commend it to you if it's something you would like to explore more. But the invite, and this is my testimony, is, is this is going to be a lifelong journey if you want in. It's going to come from the deepest part of you might feel like therapy at times. <laughs> but if you thirst for more of what it feels like, what it means to daily know you are God's beloved, his treasured possession, how you can actually live from that place in all areas of life, including hardship and trial, then I can testify that that journey is there for you. And let me say, this is, this is a very powerful identity. It's an extremely strong identity. There's nothing soft. There is nothing simply emotional about this. And it's not a short journey. It probably won't be a very easy journey. For me, I know it's going to, well, it will take the rest of my earthly life. But I can promise you it will start to change your life in the ways you've never imagined.
So let me finish prayerfully um, with some words from that book from Henry Nouwen. If you'd like to close your eyes, you're welcome to. But this is what he writes kind of towards the start of the book. He says, Dear friend, being the beloved is the origin and the fulfillment of the life of the Spirit. I say this because as soon as we catch a glimpse of this truth, as I said, I personally can testify of catching a glimpse, we are put on a journey in search of the fullness of that truth. And we will not rest until we can rest in that truth. For the moment we claim the truth of being, factually being the beloved, we are faced with then the call to become who we are. Becoming the beloved is the great Christian spiritual journey we are invited to make. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.